Welcome to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's parsha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. I'm delighted that our second guest speaker for Between the Lines is Professor Everett Fox. Everett is a scholar and translator of the Hebrew Bible, a graduate of Brandeis University, and currently the Alan M. Glick Professor of Judaic and Biblical Studies and Director of the Program in Jewish Studies at Clark University. Everett's also a regular contributor to the website, thetorah.com. Everett, a huge welcome to you and over to you to explore Pasha Noach with us. Okay, well, thanks uh, very much for inviting me. I have different perspectives on these parashiot, and of course, one might say to start, the very idea of a parasha is not etched in stone, of course. There were different ancient choices made as to where to begin these sections and where to end them, but they are, even though they have their own shape, they're still somewhat arbitrary, and therefore one looks for perhaps smaller units, but potentially also the larger picture. So I have a number of observations about this reading, some of which are quite minute and some of which try and be more global, and you can like them or dislike them as you see fit, but I hope they'll be somehow illuminating. And I'll try and introduce a number of approaches which I think are helpful in reading material in the Torah. And as you're, of course, aware, there are many different levels. Professor Brettler, years ago, in one of his books, wrote about texts being like an archaeological tell, that is to say, when you see this mound in the land of Israel and you start digging, you find the ruins of a city, and then below that, the ruins of another city, and all these levels are together. Sometimes they're jumbled together, but they're all valuable somehow. The great French anthropologist Claude Lévy-Strauss also talked about how, in his words, myths never forget they don't lose their meaning. There are early meanings and later meanings, and they are all existing together. So let me start with the wider view or a wider view, and perhaps this will be a useful way to think about these things. In this parasha, which we call by the name of the central figure, Noah, one can take a view that there's a certain amount of bracketing going on. And by that, I mean, as commentators have noticed, there is language in this text that seems to refer to creation, but creation in reverse. In other words, trying to bracket the early chapters of Genesis chapter one and the flood story itself. So that might be one way to see things happening, of God deciding to destroy the world and to, as it were, run the recording in reverse, the way perhaps DeMille did when he filmed the parting of the Red Sea in the Ten Commandments, twice actually in the 20s and in the 50s, and basically had water pouring into a trough and then reversed the film. Well, that's a little bit what Noah does. Reverses the order of creation going back to the chaos with which it began. Another way to look at this whole section of the flood story that, of course, has been used for many decades is to compare it to the other great work of ancient literature from the ancient Near East, and that is the Epic of Gilgamesh, whose text is older than that of the Bible. 
exists in several versions where you can see all kinds of development. And when you read that story, the flood section of that, where Gilgamesh, the hero, has gone to the ends of the earth to find the secret to immortality because he is grieving for his dead friend. And he finds the old, old man, Utnapishtim, who tells him the flood story. When you look at that, you have some of the feelings that archaeologists did when this text was first discovered in the 19th century. And that is that there are some considerable similarities to the biblical account, but of course, there are also great differences. Yes, a man is chosen to survive the flood, the favorite of the gods. He takes animals aboard. When it's over, he sends out a raven and so on. But the differences are really, of course, more important where Noah is chosen not because he's a favorite of the gods, although that that enters in, but because he is viewed as a righteous man. This is a moral judgment. He takes, of course, his family and either pairs of animals or seven groups. It looks like several texts have been blended together here, which doesn't seem to have bothered the ancients as much as it does modern readers. But when you look at that story, and compare it to the Gilgamesh account, you find the gods in Gilgamesh cowering before the flood. You find them when the hero offers sacrifices when it's all over. The gods crowd around the sacrifice like flies. And so their degree of control is limited and their sort of human characteristics are in the foreground. Whereas, of course, in the biblical presentation, God is totally in control above nature, controlling nature and making these moral choices. At the same time, the biblical flood story, you might say, gives evidence of a character development, not so much with Noah, who remains pretty much the same, but of God himself, God itself or herself. And in this case, one could speak of the consciousness raising of God. That is to say, God runs the world according to strict justice. People commit violence and other crimes. He decides to wipe them out. Uh, And then afterwards, he realizes perhaps he was a little hasty, and perhaps he has to make some concessions to human beings. And so when we get to chapter 9, we find this passage where God basically says that I'm not going to destroy the earth again. Why not? Because human beings are basically flawed, and I have to allow for certain emotions and certain activities. Otherwise, I will, as the Midrash has it, keep creating worlds and destroying them, and that's no good. So I will allow them, in this case, to eat meat because they apparently have an urge to do so, but there are rules, of course, you have to drain off the blood and so on. So we get to see a development in this text where, in a sense, God is learning in these early stories about humanity. By the time we get to next week, he will have a pretty fully formed idea in mind of where he wants things to go, and that, of course, will be with the family of Raham. Just to return to Gilgamesh for a moment, it appears that many of these early stories could be read as a kind of polemic, could be read as a reaction to the Mesopotamian background of this culture. Avraham comes from Ur, perhaps the great city of antiquity, perhaps just a smaller town named Ur. 
But in any event, we do get this sense that the Israelites were very well aware of some of the literature around them. And so some of these stories, like the flood story and the tower story, and even aspects of the creation story, are hardly a reaction against their environment. To begin a creation story, not by saying there was some vague male principle and a vague female principle, and somehow they got together, and that's where the gods come from. The gods are born, and this all evolves as a tremendous battle and so on. And into that well-known scenario, we get at the beginning of God's creating of the heavens and the earth, the story, as it were, beginning in midstream. We never learn where God comes from or who his parents are, or perhaps just hints of a cosmic battle with the waters, but it's very much toned down. There are no epic monsters. This is not a Marvel Comics this is a God, again, in control in a very quiet creation account compared to those of other cultures. So these are some of the larger questions that come up with this parasha, this flood story. Curious to have a flood story emanating from a culture which lived up in the hills. The Israelites, of course, did not live down by great rivers such as the Nile or the Tigris or the Euphrates. So that also makes us wonder whether this is a story that starts from the outside, but then is transformed in a particularly Israelite garb. One can also focus very closely in on specific aspects of this text, and I just want to mention a few of those. Right at the beginning of the parasha, it becomes very clear what God's motivation is for destroying the world, and a particular verb is used, shichet uh, in, in Hebrew, or as I render it, to bring ruin or to ruin. And you get this repetitive passages. This one passage, which also refers in a way back to creation. God saw the earth and here, just as God saw the earth or God saw the light that it was good. Same phraseology, but in this case, he views the earth and it is it has gone to ruin. And the whole passage is saturated with repetition. The the earth has gone to ruin before God and is filled with violence or wrongdoing. God sees the earth and it is nishata. It is ruined. So all flesh, all living things, certainly all people have brought the earth to ruin. Well, okay, that gives you the idea, three or fourfold repetition. What is really striking here is that in the very next sentence, when God says he's going to destroy the earth, he uses that very same verb, vehinani mashritam eta aretz. In other words, God is going to bring them, the world population, to ruin. And it's a beautiful example, not usually translated that way, of how there's a kind of equal justice in the Bible. People ruin the earth, their destiny will be themselves to be ruined, not just destroyed, but the punishment fits the crime. 
to quote that famous Bible commentator, W.S. Gilbert. So the wording is very important here. Another word that comes up that has been commented on, but is worth looking at again, is the name for the ark itself. Almost always painted or drawn or shaped into a children's toy in the form of a ship of some kind, with a large prow, perhaps a tiller, maybe with a little house on top. But the text here uses what appears to be an Egyptian loan word, which means not so much a boat, but a chest or a box. Now, why do it that way? To show that God is in control, Noah is not a great sailor who is a wonderful engineer and ingeniously constructs this craft, but instead this is God in total control. God even closes the door, which is very nice of him. And of course, the word occurs later in the Torah in a different but related context. When Moshe's mother can't hide him any longer, he's three months old. She puts him in a basket. And again, if you look at paintings or drawings, you will always see a very nice basket. It's, uh, it has a pitch, so it's watertight, and the baby is in there with a little blanket. Everything is fine. Well, biblical Hebrew has a number of words for basket. It doesn't choose any of them. It chooses the term teva. And this would seem to be deliberate that just as the teva of Noah got through the flood pretty much intact, and therefore saved humanity and the animal kingdom. So we know instinctively that Moshe will survive the perils of the Nile journey, and he will go up to do his job. So specific words can be illuminating, and they can, as the Bible loves to do, allude to other sections. We have that with the creation story, now we have it moving ahead with Moshe. One final set of observations, and that is that the parasha ends with, more or less, with the story of the tower. And this, too, is often thought of as a polemic by the time of the biblical period itself. There were, of course, these ziggurats, these towers in Mesopotamia, some of them probably already in ruins, and some of those, of course, have survived You may remember that during the first Gulf War back in the 90s that Saddam Hussein placed some of his fighter planes next to these structures because he figured that the Americans and the British perhaps would not bomb cultural artifacts and take the planes with them. I'm not sure how that all worked out, but uh, as far as I know, they didn't didn't bomb these towers. Well, you know, here's, here's another polemical text as if to say, why do we have these ruins, huge, huge towers that have somehow survived well? This is not an indication of past glory. It's an indication of failure. It's a little bit like Shelley's poem about uh, Ozymandias, look on me, ye mighty, and despair. Well, you look at the ruins, and yes, there was magnificence there, but the Bible seems to represent this as an indication of human overreach, building a tower with its top in the heavens, and how that is doomed to to failure. There is a border between the divine and the human, and this is somehow summarized by a somewhat nasty pun. The Bible is not always kind to other civilizations. And what's the pun? The name of the city is, of course, known to everyone as Bavel, Babylon. But this story in chapter 11 of Genesis says that's why they called it Bavel, because there God Balal 
baffled, confused, mixed up human language, and they had to stop building the city. As Midrashic texts have it, workmen asked for some mortar, asked for a brick, and got hit with a tool instead, and fighting broke out. What's lovely here is that Avel and Balal are played against each other, and it's our great good fortune. Babylon and Babel and Baffle can all be mixed together there. God baffled the language of all the earth folk. And from there, the refrain, God scattered them over the face of all the earth. And so by the time we get to the end of this story and are introduced to Avraham, it's clear that the divine plan has not quite worked out as originally conceived. People have done evil things. They've been destroyed. They've been reconstituted. They are supposed to fill the earth, but instead they get together to build one of these skyscrapers. I have to say that, you know, as a as a native New Yorker, it's a little bit dismaying for me to see 20 years after 9-11, if you would go to the island of Manhattan today, you will see 80 and 90 and 100-story of thin towers, which are all expensive apartment buildings. You know, we're building up again. I know the demographic and engineering reasons for it. But something about this story always comes to mind. It's a story that made a huge impression on people in the Middle Ages who took it as the great symbol of pride. So if you ever get the opportunity, if you're in Vienna, I don't remember where the other one is, maybe in Holland, you can view the two great Bruegel paintings of this tower looking rather like the Roman Colosseum and stands as the great symbol of human failure and in a way God has to turn to a new plan, which is to choose one man, one family. Do they succeed? That's a story for another time. So I'll be happy to take any questions you may have. Professor Fox, thank you so much for that wonderful journey through Noah and sharing your thoughts around the polemics and the important parallels with the Epic of Gilgamesh and so on. I really had two questions. The first is, you spoke just now on God's plan changing. I think you also said earlier that the development of God also progresses in Horatius mm-hmm. and Noah. I wonder if you might just chart that a little bit further and what you see as the progression that we uncover in the first two parashas. Yeah, you know, in the first parasha in Bereshit, There's the structure of a warning or a prohibition, and then it's violation, and then the punishment. Both the Adam and Eve story and the Cain and Abel story follow this structure. And the punishment in both cases is exile. So there's a sense that the larger story of the Bible is already foreshadowed in some of these earlier stories, which have other meanings as well, but they've been molded into this kind of structure. There's an essay where Martin Buber has talked about this. I I think it's the one called Abraham the Seer, available in English. And it's as if humanity is given some rules, but they can't help violating them. And so by the time we get to the end of Noah, a new plan is needed. God has made a concession to human weakness, the desire for meat. He has made a covenant not to destroy them again, at least by water. And somehow what he winds up with is people banding together 
and not populating the world. In terms of God, we're also going to see another curious phenomenon, which is in the book of Genesis, God receding in terms of his contacts with human beings. So in the Adam and Eve story, he walks around the garden with them. He talks to Cain. He eventually talks to Abraham. He appears in dreams to Jacob and Joseph and does not even talk to Joseph directly. And so there seems to be this pulling back, almost as if to say, you're on your own now. You're going to have to figure out how to live. I will give you, of course, some guidelines. But, you know, with Abraham, we have certain ideas, but it really is, of course, not until Moses that we get the whole picture. So there does seem to be some kind of evolution here, just as later on, when they're in the land, they will be a tribal society. The elders will make all the decisions, but that too can't stand. They will need a central authority. They will need a king. So there is this sense of movement and some curious moments with God. God agrees to have a king selected for them. But as Professor Brettler has pointed out in the past, not the best choice as a king. So, you know, God is sorry that he did that as well. So that's what I mean by kind of a learning text. It's a trial and error, just as countries do, and certainly in, in recent history uh, in America, in Britain, uh, a number of trial and error situations where we are kind of feeling our way. But of course, now COVID has overwhelmed a lot of that. Anyway, it's a long-winded answer to your question. Simon, was there another question that you had? Yeah, one more question. The trial and error certainly persists. I wonder really, just reflecting again, perhaps, on both Bereshit and Noah, what you see as the purpose behind these two opening parshas behind the entire Hebrew Bible, seeing they certainly appear very differently to what comes next. Are you asking why those stories are there as opposed to starting with Abraham, for instance? Yeah. They seem to be necessary as a prelude to establish some of the rules and tell us who God is, or at least how he acts in certain circumstances and the choices that people have. I mean, the rest of the Torah is very much about choice. I'm giving you these laws. If you keep these laws, then everything will be fine. There'll be peace and prosperity. And if not, then bad news. We know that already a little bit from the early stories of humanity. In other words, this is not entirely a tribal story. It could have been constructed that way, but it seems to have been important to start out with the kind of the history of humanity and the history of the world, as if to say they are all bound together. Perhaps that the people of Israel has a certain role, a certain mission, if you will, and that the world somehow is affected by that. Now, that's an extraordinarily presumptuous idea for a small people. <laughs> but uh, we seem to have gotten it into our heads that we matter somehow. And so human history is tied to Israel's history. And of course, there are enough universal things in these stories, whether about Abraham or Moses or David, that we can identify with in the human condition but also this kind of divine plan. Professor Fox, thank you so much for joining us and sharing such a wonderful journey through Noach today. 
And I think we look forward to joining you also next week for an installment on Lech Lecha. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, find out all about the exciting content that we have for you at our mothership at jewishquest.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week.